0: Well, good evening. Welcome back. Good to see you tonight. Welcome, welcome. I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're still in uh, basic doctrinal studies, taking over from where Dan Craw left it off. And uh, we're dealing with the essence of God, uh, part of theology proper. And at the close of last week, I asked for your prayers uh, for guidance and wisdom as we move forward. There was a part of me that was going to just kind of rush through this portion and assign it on a homework basis and kind of move on to other areas, and then during the week I got more convicted and said, no, we ought to do that in class and go item by item and talk about it and pray about it and look at the scriptures and answer questions that may come up and may even take the opportunity to explore in some realms and some things. Because I think sometimes sovereignty, for example, a lot of these things get misdefined um, and they get defined in different ways by different people. And so you might talk to somebody about sovereignty and think that you're like-minded and then after a while, you start to realize uh, they, they're, they're talking about a different kind of sovereignty than, than I'm aware of. So it might be useful to, to make sure that we're clear uh, related to what uh, each of these attributes is and uh, what each of these attributes is not. Uh, that may be fruitful as well. So let me open this up with a word of prayer to dedicate our time together for the glory of Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time and your word tonight. We thank you for the privilege that we have to study the word of God and the delight that it is, Father, to go through a basics class. No matter how many times we've gone through it, we always learn more. And it's a delight, Father, to not only uh, study it for its own sake, but then, Father, also to share in ways that perhaps we've taught this in other classes as well. Father, I thank you for uh, just all the ways that you show yourself faithful. Bless our study tonight. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. I believe I'm going to back up just slightly. I'm using, by the way, the notebook. If you have a basic doctrinal studies notebook from when we taught this before, and you do. All right. And so in some cases you have a hard copy in a notebook format. And in other cases you have a soft copy in a PDF format or even um, a Logos version where you make a personal book out of it and put it in your Logos Bible Software, which I helped Doug do the other day, and it's what I'm using here tonight. Um, yeah, I think we, we talked last week about God's personality, his essence, his nature, his attributes. Uh, that What I created years ago was the acronym of PECAN, P-E-C-A-N. Personality, all right, essence, character, attributes, and nature. Because I think there's certain things that speak to his character uh, for example, his integrity, uh, uh, his faithfulness. And, and sometimes they don't necessarily come across as aspects of, or elements, attributes of his essence. And so it might be best to kind of think of certain things as part of personality, certain things as part of his nature. I think it's his nature to be very long-suffering. I think it's part of his character to be uh, to be absolute integrity. Uh, other aspects of his personality, maybe, stressing his uh, his sense of humor. Uh, some other aspects there. Uh, so last week uh, we dealt with, I think, some of those broader concepts. Uh, I want to kind of drill down tonight and use this hour to focus on the essence box, uh, which has 10 items in it, because that's, you know, what you do. <laughs> you make a box, you put 10 items in it, and you call it good. Uh, am, I, am I opposed to 11 items? Am I opposed to 9 items? Is there something m- magical and mystical about the number 10? Um, no. <laughs> all right. And if another pastor comes along and he has 12 uh, elements in his essence box, do we split fellowship with? with? No, of course not. Uh, all of these are devices. All of these are tools. They're all um, memory aids that help you. I mean, if it helps you to put them in a square-shaped box or a triangle-shaped box or whatever you do, uh, the the point is we want to remember these attributes. And uh, And I prefer to keep it as simple as possible. To me, when it's simpler, it, uh, I remember it longer related to those things. So um, the, one I, the box that I learned as a child had these attributes, sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, immutability, and veracity. So that was 10. And then if you're going to add, if you're going to tweak it here and there and add elements here and there, well, okay, you can do that. You're just going above or below the 10 uh, at that point. Also, some of these combine readily. Some of these combine uh, quite readily. In fact, righteousness and justice are very frequently lumped together. And a lot of times they get combined together. Pastor Theme put them together in terms of the holiness of God. And he, he broke down different attributes uh, in, in a, tr- a transitive sense, in an active sense. Uh, he had transitive attributes and, and so forth. And at some point, I, I appreciated those studies, and then on other occasions I thought, you know, um, hmm, I'm not sure. So uh, it just depends on what works for you. And the thing is, We don't have a passage of Scripture like the fruit of the Spirit. There is no fruit of the Spirit passage that says the essence of God is, right? And then starts to list them in this order, sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love. And so anyone who does a study like this is doing an inductive study of the Scriptures to search from Genesis to Revelation and find characteristics that are descriptive of God. What is he like? What is he like? And is it so descriptive of what he's like that we say it's characteristic, it's it's essential to who he is. In other words, if God was not love, if we remove love, it is so essential to who God is, God would not be the God we know if we did not include love as a part of his attributes, right? And I think that's a good definition as well as far as what makes it essential, part of his essence. So, um, Again, before we get lost in the trees, let's not lose the forest, okay? We cannot take one attribute and so magnify it that it's to the detriment of all the others, all right? And I think people do that. I think there's a danger to so stress the love of God because it's your favorite or whatever. It's kind, it's fun. You know, love, yes, God has love. And then it causes him or us to compromise on righteousness, to compromise on justice, to make excuses for sin, to somehow wink at sin. And, and we can't do that because God can't do that, all right? God is not free in love to save any one of us until his justice, the, the, the demands of justice are satisfied. That's why the cross is necessary. If he could compromise justice just willy-nilly based on his love, he wouldn't have sent his son to the cross. There'd be no point to that. But because he had to satisfy his justice, his son had to go to the cross. The only means to propitiate or satisfy his justice and his righteousness was through that means. So, um, don't take any aspect of his, of his attributes, for example, his, his sovereignty at the expense of his omniscience, or his omniscience at the expense of his sovereignty. There's a, there's a tension in some of these that human beings through the years have struggled to reconcile. And in our weakness, in our finite ability to put them together, I think um, there have been errors made. People have um, come up with flawed definitions of omniscience. Based upon a flawed definition of sovereignty, and and one has impacted the, the other, and I'll we'll comment on that as we as we reach each one. So uh, none of the parts stands alone. We have to study all of them in their in their totality, the sum total of God's being, and then with the humility, of course, in Job 11, we will never exhaust the infinite understanding of who God is. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? And I'll go ahead and turn these other ones off and make the text bigger so you can read it. Yeah, not, um, I, I haven't even turned the projector on yet. How about that? All right, thank you. Well, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? Well, to an infinite degree, of course not, because we're finite beings. But within the capacity that he has made available to us, that is made in his image, provided with his spirit, provided with his revelation, within the the scope of what he has supplied, then we better understand it because we're accountable. The secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. So if he has revealed in his word, we're accountable. And we better study to show ourselves approved within the boundaries and limitations to know that uh, we will always have one more question than than there are answers available, because of the infinite nature of who God is. All right, turned on and running. All right, here we go. Sovereignty. You have any favorite sovereignty verses? When you think sovereignty, what do you think? Sovereignty. God is not subject to any authority higher than His own. So we tend to think of sovereignty on a on a chain of command basis. We tend to think of higher versus lower. Right, like when we think of time as before and after, we have a relationship to these concepts that's foreign to God's relationship to these concepts. We, we when we think of time, we, we we relate in older versus younger, before versus after, things like that. We think of sequence. God, of course, is beyond all that. Same thing with respect to sovereignty. We think of sovereignty when we think of well, who's over us? Who are we over? What's the chain of command? Ultimately, God is beyond that. It's not that He's above all that. He is. But he's above because he's beyond. He's above and beyond because he is the the pure actuality. He is the self-existent I am. And so by virtue of being I am, obviously there is nothing beyond himself that controls what he does. He alone is uncreated. He alone has created. As the source of all things, God is master of all things. And when you think of source as the basis of authority, this defines it. Uh, absolute sovereignty, however, does not mean that God is not subject to anything. And that, that uh, bothers some folks. So we slow down and we phrase it carefully and we say, well, here's what I mean by that. What might he be subject to? So well, he's not subject to anything. Well, wait a minute. He's subject to himself, his own nature, the necessity of his own actuality, the necessity of his own existence. Uh, he, is not, he cannot, in his sovereignty, choose to become a sinner tomorrow. Right? He cannot choose to lie. He cannot choose to violate his own essence. Does that mean his sovereignty is diminished? And maybe I'm I'm, going to start off with this because sovereignty is the one that gets confused. More often than not, Calvinists and others have struggled with this. And so they they furiously want to defend sovereignty that needs no defending. And so if we can relax a little bit right here at the starting point, I think it'll, it'll benefit us in other aspects. And so... He is, in fact, subject to himself. He is self-existent but not self-made. Okay? That becomes important, too. God did not create himself, and so God is not master of himself. In the sense of, of when we think about enkratia, self-control, and what we have as a fruit of the Spirit, it's, it's, it's different when you are pure actuality, when you are I am, as opposed to what we are. Okay? So to be precise, God's sovereignty does not enable him to violate his being he cannot change what he is, he cannot alter what he is, he cannot violate what he is, he cannot operate on a different basis other than what he is. Sovereignty does not free him to do that. Neither does omnipotence, by the way. Uh, you know, all these dumb things about can he make a rock so big he cannot lift it kind of a thing, and these geniuses that think they found a logical trap that disproves God or something like that, right? And And the question itself is absurd, and our God in his pure actuality is beyond the absurdities of, of the human defiance that thinks they've created a puzzle to defeat his existence. All right. His sovereignty does not enable him to violate his being. So, um, perhaps if we stay as biblical as we possibly can on sovereignty, we'll have the best definition. Okay? And, and maybe identifying where the weaknesses are in, in uh, flawed human sovereignty, right? relative sovereignty. If, if no one is my boss, then I'm sovereign, right? Until my, my real boss shows up, <laughs> okay? And so, you know, as a kid, you, you, know, you start to learn, well, who's my boss? And I'm not the boss. My parents are the boss. And then I learn within my parents that mom and daddy are, have an have a order of precedent between themselves as far as marriage and the husband over the wife and the, the order of precedence, the order of sovereignty in that regard. So from the youngest of ages, we can learn these concepts, and it's not bad to think of, well, who can overrule somebody else. Not a bad definition of sovereignty, but I think it's incomplete as far as the Bible portrays it. So, Bible passages on sovereignty, I think, make these comments quite clear. Job 23 3, uh, 13, I'm sorry. He is unique, and who can turn him? He is unique, and who can turn him? That, that says a lot right there. His self-existent, unique nature means that there is none above and beyond Him, His glory and His might and His authority. What His soul desires, that He does. There's another definition, okay? Soul desire. And that also rules out all the carnality stuff, right? All the sinning and lying and wicked stuff because His soul would never desire such. That's not subject to sovereignty because it's not subject to His soul's desires. You and I, on the other hand, uh, we find in our relative sovereignty, there might be a lot our soul desires to do. <laughs> There's a lot we might want to do, but we can't. We either aren't able, or we can't afford it, or we're not, uh, it just doesn't work out. There's competing things that we want to do, things of that nature. Not so with God. What his soul desires, that he does. Psalm 115 our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. There's the contrast between heaven and earth, between God and us. He does whatever He pleases. Isaiah 46, this is a powerful rebuke because it rebukes the false gods, the fallen angels, the posers. He says, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Not only is He the only I am, but all those posers that claim they're going to they're gonna be like the Most High God, they've already defeated themselves. Even the statement of I will be has to confess that they are not I am. <laughs> okay, I will be like the Most High God. Well, too late. I am is eternally self-existent. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established. Scroll this down here. Calling a bird of prey. Did I miss a verse? Well, I'm just losing my place all over there. All right. Doesn't normally skip more than a verse at a time. All right, verse 11. So that's 9, 10, and 11. All right. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. That's sovereignty, right? You and I can have all kinds of intentions, maybe good intentions, the best of intentions, and then something happens and we don't get done what we said we were going to get done. That's an expression of our finite sovereignty, right? Or lack thereof. Daniel 4.35 count on this if politics gets depressing. Go to the book of Daniel. (laughs) He's in charge. He's in charge of our rulers. He installs kings. He removes kings. He's in total command of all human history. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. (laughs) You can stack them all up. They can cooperate together, put them all in one great big room, all of them together, zero in his ledger. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? There's no one that can stop him from doing what he wants to do, and there's no one that can stop his hand or, or second-guess him or, or say, what have you done? Or call him to account. Explain yourself. Why did you do that? All right? This is sovereignty in action. His plan is unfolding from Alpha to Omega. Ephesians one eleven. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of of his will. And that's so loaded with so much truth and so much doctrine. Council, of course, speaks of the Trinitarian agreement. Who did he take counsel with? With you and me? No, <laughs> we weren't there. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all there before the foundation of the earth called the Council of his will. No being can overrule God's sovereignty, but neither can God's sovereignty overrule his own essence. He cannot deny himself. And that's important as well. When we See, the universal descriptions of sovereignty, let's recognize there's also some limitations the Bible records. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He is not sovereign enough to cancel your salvation. Isn't that great? All right, you are secure by his own integrity, by his own faithfulness. Moses even had the confidence in God's character to tell God what he could not do. In effect, Moses pointed out to God that his sovereignty was not free to destroy Israel because God's veracity would not allow him to go back on a promise he had made to Israel. Are we bold enough in our prayer life to pray like that? To be so in tune with the plan of God, in tune with his character, with his nature, with his work, that uh, we can stand like Moses to say, Now, Lord, it sure appears to me like you're on the verge of violating veracity here. And Lord, since I know that you're not doing that, <laughs> let me just tell you, Lord, you can't do that. And so you become a, a fellow worker in your prayer life on that basis. That's, to me, it's a beautiful thing. Exodus 32, verses 9 through 14. As, as the Lord says, Let me alone, my anger may burn against them, and I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. problem is, is uh, he's got promises to, to all 12 tribes, and Moses is just one lonely old little Levite there. And if God blasts all the other tribes and starts over with Moses... That means he's a liar times 11 to those other tribes. He might still make good on what he said he'd do for Levi, but uh, he can't start over with Moses because he made promises to all 12 tribes, all of Israel. All right. Perhaps the most perplexing aspect of God's sovereignty is the significance of his sovereign creation of volitional creatures. All right. It really bothers people that God allows sin. All right. And they can't deny that he does, well they do, but they uh, it bothers them that when they read in Genesis that Adam and Eve sinned and God lets them do it. And if they really dig in deep, they find out that Satan sinned before that, that he was a fallen creature before the before the Garden of Eden, the serpent was already a fallen creature. So Satan's, the, an, the angelic sin preceded the human sin. Why does God permit that? All right? And then the different groups will go to different extremes. An Arminian view will so magnify the free will of angels and men that it kind of diminishes God's options in some respects. Likewise, the Calvinist view so magnifies the the sovereignty of God that it really dismisses, it makes volition uh, an illusion. There's no such thing as volition. I've had people look me in the eye and say, I don't believe in volition. All right? And uh, things there. So... How does, this, how, does this, how does this reconcile? Okay? Because God obviously doesn't have any problem reconciling. He created you know, He created us the way that he did, already being sovereign. And, and I like the phrase I put there, his sovereign creation of volitional creatures. Okay, So when God created volitional creatures, guess what? That was an exercise of sovereignty when he did so. He didn't have to create this way. No one was holding a gun to his head saying, you better make those guys with, with volition." He did so sovereignly. He did so in his wisdom. He did so in his all, uh, not just all, know, all knowing, but all wise. See, I think omnisapience ought to be added to om, uh, omniscience when it comes right down to it. But then I have 11 in my essence box, and I don't want to do that. All right. Um, so he sovereignly created volition. <clears throat> the provision of volition in the angelic and human realms of creation sometimes prompts a conflict within our finite minds. Does our human exercise of volition overrule God's sovereignty? Not at all. Not at all. But people think it does, and so they they deny it so they can defend God's sovereignty. If he permits me to do something, he's still sovereign. When man takes an action contrary to what God directs, he is acting within the sphere of what God allows. God's directive will and God's permissive will are both within the realm of God's absolute sovereignty since god sovereignly bestowed volition the use of volition does not diminish sovereignty i think actually it magnifies sovereignty god is more sovereign by virtue of what he permits us to do and still he's not thwarted in one respect all right i think i think it is a diminished if if we if we Lower God's sovereignty down to just a puppet master, a robot controlling everything, including every sin you ever do and every bad choice. Then, if God is just putting on some kind of a cosmic drama, whereby He controls every sin you ever did, where's the glory in that? What's the purpose in that? What a uh, is he? Is he that insecure that he can't? He has to control everything. Does he have no control otherwise? I think it's a greater control when he works through such volition when he works through such things and obviously his foreknowledge allows him to do that because he knows every choice before it's made okay this is why i say i think it's a bad definition of sovereignty that to be so hyper deterministic on these things that that it diminishes what god knows on that basis So volition, we'll study volition. I think volition magnifies sovereignty. In the anthropology segment of basics, we get a greater study on volition, just how free is free will. And if it's hindered by sin, obviously. If it's hindered by the world, obviously. It's hindered by circumstances and details of life, obviously. But it's still free enough that we are accountable for every choice we make. We reap what we sow. Poor decisions lead to discipline. Good decisions lead to, lead to blessing. And there's there's other principles there in the law of sowing and reaping. All right, God takes no pleasure in compulsion, but he takes pleasure in voluntary service. And this, I think this is also a nature of sovereignty. And I want to touch on it here before we move on. Because just a few minutes ago, did, did we or did we not look at de- biblical definitions of sovereignty that spoke of his good pleasure? Right, He does all his good pleasure. It's a definition of sovereignty. It's not everything he wants to do, but it's everything that pleases him. Okay? And that good pleasure, I think, is key because we find other things that he takes no pleasure in, like compulsion. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, we're told. Ah, that's a clue. That shows us what pleases him, what doesn't please him. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That is such a valid principle. Not only in the, the money you drop in the grace box, that is a, that's a fraction of the applications to be made here. Okay? In everything that we do, every work of service, every, every field of ministry, every parenting uh, assignment, every marital assignment, Everything we do ought to be done in the proper motivation that pleases the Father, and that's on a free will basis. As he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. It's a reflection of why God didn't create because he had to. He created because he wanted to. He created us in his image because he wanted to. We need to model that by doing as we purpose in our heart. Shaped by the word of God, molded according to the image of Christ. Not grudgingly. See, God doesn't. And so the corollary to this, if God loves a cheerful giver, what is his attitude related to the grudging or compulsion giver? Well, it's not a love attitude, (laughs) right? It's the the flip side of what that verse is talking about. He takes no pleasure in compulsion. What what glory is there in compulsion? You know, because he can force you to do something, big deal. He knows he can force you to do something. (laughs) That doesn't prove anything to him. What, what value is there in that? See, And in, in ultimately, I think it comes down to those issues on love, why love has to be voluntary. If it's, if it's compelled love, it's not love. Okay. It's the nature of what he designs for you and I to love his son the way he loves his son. The way for you and I to love him the way his son loves him. It comes down to how the son loves the father, how the father loves the son, and how you and I are, are learning how to love both. And if it's not free will, it's, it's not worth anything. not worth anything at all. Hope we're clear on that. 1 Peter 5, 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you. See, I told you, grace giving is only one small portion of the, of the principle of cheerful giving, of, of voluntary free will service. Shepherding, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. I think that phrase right there, that expression right there, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. To me, that's powerful. And not for sordid gain, but yet with eagerness. Okay? If you're just doing it for the money, that's compulsion. The money is its own form of compulsion. It's its own pseudo-motivation that's not the, the, the free will motivation. Okay? I would pastor even if I didn't get paid. How do I know that? Because I did. <laughs> I'll do it again if the Lord wants me to. All right. And that's, that's how you know. And Dan's demonstrating the same thing right now in Corpus Christi. If, if that pulpit committee is concerned about the kind of money he needs to make, they need to stop being so concerned. All right. That's a secondary issue. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These secondary things, the Lord will take care of those too. All right. In his timing, in his will nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. That's the other aspect that Dan's teaching them right now tonight, or this morning in Corpus Christi. Those allotted to your charge. (laughs) Isn't that great? Who did the allotting? Who's in charge? (laughs) Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here's an under-shepherd who's commanded to shepherd the flock of God among you. It's all God's flock, but there's a part of it that's among you. And that part of it that's among you has been allotted to you. It has been allotted to your charge. And so whether that's a thousand sheep or a hundred sheep or five sheep or whatever it is, those that have been allotted to your charge, you better stay faithful. Because the chief shepherd is the one that's grading you and judging you and rewarding you those allotted to your charge. And what I'm thankful now, that key right there, that, that's such a huge key. And, and right now they're praying about that because uh, they want to find out who have they been allotted to. That's the, that's the simple answer. You know, Instead of you know, coming to a business decision and trying to figure out who, you know, what's the best pastor we can hire for the budget we've got, uh, wait a minute, is this a business decision? <laughs> what are you doing? Are you obeying the chief shepherd? Does Jesus Christ not walk in the midst of these lampstands? Does he not hold the stars in his right hand? To me, you find out who have you been allotted to and then that's the church you belong in. All right, That's the pastor for this flock. And then finally, Philemon 14. Without your consent, I did not want to do anything. He was, he had, there was a part of him that wanted to keep Onesimus there in Rome to serve him on behalf of Philemon, but he didn't want to do that and have Philemon ignorant of what was happening. He had to send Onesimus back to carry the letter, to carry this letter as well as Colossians, to carry these letters back, and then leave himself in the hands of Philemon to do the right thing. Without your consent and did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be noticed in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. And to me, that that may be the most significant of all these passages. Because it, would it really, is it really a compulsion if, if Paul just keeps him ignorant of the whole thing? Is it really compulsion if, if Philemon never learns about it and Paul just keeps Onesimus there, exercises authority and says, all right, you're with me, and then just keeps Philemon in the dark the whole time? Is it really compulsion? Well, in effect, in effect it's compulsion. See, it's like a de facto compulsion, right? Might as well be. And that's the point. Even something that's de facto or might as well be or in effect, even effective compulsion doesn't please God. That's, it shows you how seriously he takes this. But of your own free will. All right. Since sovereignty by definition is the achievement of God's good pleasure, volition is essential to sovereignty. And determinism is antithetical to sovereignty. Do you have a question related to that? Can we get a microphone? Do we have a microphone available? I'll say this again. Since sovereignty is by definition the achievement of God's pleasure, volition is essential to sovereignty. And determinism is antithetical to it. All right, what's your question?
1: I I apologize. It was actually back when you were in uh, First Peter 5, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to stop you. You're on a roll. Okay. Um, right here, and in... And actually, in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you, mm-hmm. as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, partake of the glorious to be revealed. And then he goes into this charge, shepherd. So many times when reading this verse, I've thought of this as the spiritual gift of pastor, teacher. You can take second, third things from this, but really, when I'm reading it and listening to what you're saying, to me, it could be a primary application to anybody that has a maturity status with anybody underneath them that needs to be shepherded in some context?
0: Like, for example, maybe a
1: mom and dad with kids?
0: Well, on a secondary application, sure. But um, this is actually a beautiful text because it includes the elder language of Okay, An elder is a maturity status. It's not a gift. It's not an office. But it also includes shepherding. So verse 1 has elder, and the elder is commanded to shepherd and to exercise oversight. And so shepherding is the gift, right? Pastor-teacher is a gift. And then exercising oversight, now that's the office. That's the office of overseer. And so we have the gift, the ministry, and or the office, and the maturity status. And they're all right here in this, in this passage, all three. And so it's, it's useful to, to identify that not every elder is in the office of overseer, there are those who rule well, and they are to be considered worthy of double honor in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But there are elders who rule and elders who don't rule. So that, there's, there's, bigger, there's bigger things than, than what's right here in 1 Peter 5.
1: Um, but does the verb to shepherd, is that always got to be to the people who have the shepherd gift or the pastor-teacher gift?
0: Oh, no, you can, you can shepherd without a shepherding gift. It's just easier when you have a shepherding gift. Yeah, you can evangelize without an evangelism gift. You can give without the gift of giving. I hope you all do. All right. the, um, any, any of the gifts are able to be done by people with other giftedness, but the believers that have that gift are empowered above and beyond. And so your pastor teachers are empowered above and beyond every other gift in the book for shepherding. But they're not the only gift that shepherds. Husbands are to shepherd wives, parents are to shepherd children, older believers shepherd younger believers. There's a lot of shepherding that happens, but it's just the gift of pastor-teacher is the one that's best suited that's divinely empowered above and beyond the other gifts.
1: Gotcha. So really, this these two verses really, in three ways, powerfully hit the pastor-teacher gift. That's right. But, I mean, but Elder, they could overseer, also,
0: pastor-teacher.
1: But could also really apply to anybody, like you said, with any shepherding opportunity to oversight mm-hmm. underneath them. Okay, cool.
0: Yep. Thank you. Excellent question. All right. So sovereignty is not God can do whatever he wants to do. Right? That's the bad definition. He can't do whatever he wants to do. All you have to define it as what pleases him. There are things he cannot do. And sovereignty does not, him, uh, does not allow him to do the things he cannot do. Okay righteousness. It's the first of two attributes which together comprise holiness. Our God is a holy God. He expects us to be holy. Righteousness and justice form a two-edged sword by which God's holiness is possessed and expressed. And these terms are interesting because when you study the Hebrew, when you study the Greek, a lot of times there's overlap. A lot of times dekaios is rendered as just, uh, but of course dekaiosune is righteousness. And we've got uh, terms that can be translated either way and when they're brought into the English alright, you got tzedek and tzedakah for righteous, you got mishpat for just or justice but sometimes there's overlap there as well or different Hebrew terms are translated uh, either way and so a lot of times a word study becomes confusing if you try to find just one single Hebrew word and demand that it always is righteousness because it's not always sometimes it's also justice um But he does expect us to be holy. God is absolute righteousness. And I like Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. And so here's a verse that's got a variety of terms including just and righteous and upright. Upright is entirely different than just or righteous. Related but different. Okay. I've even... uh, Years ago, I forgot how I even did this. I even created a little visual filter, so I get little cues in my Bible anytime there's a sedek term or anytime there's a mishpat term, and it pops up in a little green pop-up there as a visual filter in my software. So His ways are just. That's one of the mishpat terminology, and righteous. That's sedek or tzidikah. Righteous and upright is He. Absolute righteousness, not the relative righteousness of humanity. See, as humans, we try to define things as right or fair based on what we think is right or fair, based on what we think is good or better or good enough, or, well, I'm better than that guy, so I'm good enough, all right? And we have concepts of goodness that we allow to blend across into definitions of righteousness, and that further muddies the water as well. But it's not a relative righteousness of humanity. Okay? Now, Judah recognized him and said, She is more righteous than I, when he had his sin with, uh, with Tamar exposed, right? And so Tamar was more righteous than, than Judah. Well, that's what you talk about when you compare humans. You've got a relative standard. And maybe there's some that are more, some that are better. He said to David, You are more righteous than I. Samuel had, or not Samuel, King Saul had to admit that you are more righteous than I, for you, uh, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. Relative standard, yeah, he was more righteous. First Kings two thirty two, the Lord will return his blood on his own head because he fell upon two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with a sword, while well, my father David did not know it. Abner the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, wow, he was a hero. And uh, Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. All right. And uh, Joab uh, killed them both. Men more righteous than him. All right. Well, we've got to get away from the relative standard of humanity and understand God's standard. It is absolute. Righteousness means being right and doing right. That is conformed to the absolute standard of, of God. From the ends of the earth we hear songs, glory be to the righteous one. He is self-existent, he is I am, he is righteous. The standard is him. If it misses the mark of him, it's unrighteous. If it reaches his mark, it's his righteousness. And that's the only way we can be saved, by the way, is to reach his mark. Which of us can do that? (laughs) Which of us can, can hit that target? Only when he imputes it to our account. I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me. The treacherous deal treacherously. The treacherous deal very treacherously. It's about his righteousness. Thank God that's what he provides for us when we get saved. The opposite of righteousness is treachery. We see that here. We see it elsewhere. Unrighteousness, wickedness. The terms good and evil are used synonymously with righteousness and unrighteousness in Matthew 5.45. You may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So it's not entirely wrong to blend the concepts of good and evil, right and wrong, righteous and unrighteous. They, they are shades of, of meaning with respect to the same concept. The standard, though, is him. Okay? The standard is him. The standard is not nice. <laughs> I think we live in a generation that has substituted the theology of nice for any biblical theology that you used to know right? It's all about moralistic, therapeutic deism, and it's all about the theology of nice. We just want to be nice. And the nicer you are, the the more holy you are assumed to be because you are thriving in the church of nice. Anyway, I'm not advocating being mean, okay? What I'm saying, let's not substitute nice for righteous, okay? And true graciousness in uh, the Christian way of life. Sometimes Jesus wasn't very nice, but he was always gracious. He was always loving. Okay, we want to make sure we reflect that ourselves. God's absolute righteousness is the eternal standard by which He may be approached. No human being measures up to absolute righteousness. My favorite Isaiah sixty four six: All of us have become like one who is unclean; all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. You can pile up every good thing you've ever done in your life. It's worthless. Any sin falls short of God's glory, Romans three twenty three, and separates us from his holiness. Isaiah fifty nine two. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. That's the nature of sin. Sin is death, that death is a separation. By faith in Jesus Christ we may become the righteousness of God in him the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. You can't earn this righteousness. You can't deserve this righteousness. It's through faith in him. Romans 5.19, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are now the righteousness of God in Christ. It's the only way we measure up to His standard. His righteousness is a theme often celebrated in the Psalms. A whole string of Psalms there to look at. The walk of righteousness is the walk of wisdom, according to Proverbs, and a whole string of Proverbs there. All right, and it's it's the it's the similar to Ephesians, walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. I think the walk of wisdom in Proverbs is in a similar vein to that, in the sense that, look, this is the walk of wisdom, why would you want to walk any other walk? All right? You're not earning righteousness by using God's wisdom, you are exhibiting righteousness by using God's wisdom. We walk in response to our salvation by grace through faith, if that makes sense. All right, and, and here, too, I think righteousness, this is, this is great for us to have, make sure we have a firm handle on ourselves, in our own evangelism, in our, in our ministry to others, particularly this unrighteous world. We, uh, we want to be very clear with everybody you know that's going to hell, that it's um, not by works of unrighteousness which they have done. Should I say that again? Not by works of unrighteousness which they have done. They're not going to hell for all the bad things they've done. They are born in Adam. It's really by grace they are condemned in Adam. By virtue of of making the wages of sin, death, a singular, by virtue of making that lost estate of Adam condemned, God in his grace condemned all of Adamic humanity. He didn't just judge Adam personally. All sinned when Adam sinned. We saw that this morning in Romans 5. So because all sinned, it is on that basis that they are condemned, separated from the Father's righteousness and, and condemned to the lake of fire. Then you can start talking to them about the real righteousness, what's imputed to their account, what can be imputed to their account on the basis of faith in Christ. To me, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a useful device. I've used it in the past. Because, I mean, you're going to encounter folks that think they've done so much that think there's no way that they're savable. There's just, there's no way. They can't imagine any God loving them enough to save them enough because of, of how much they've done. It boggles their mind. And, and so as soon as you say it's not a quantity issue, God so loved the world, all right? But here's how that love was expressed. And it's not a quantity issue. I think sometimes you flatter yourself too. Really, how many sins have you done? You know, you're 50 years old. How many sins can you do in 50 years? You know, even if you do a thousand a day for fifty years, what's that? Compared to the billions and billions and billions of humans and the trillions and trillions and trillions of sins. And then you, know, you want to talk quantity. Every last one of those was on the cross. You're just one sinner, and you're really kind of a chump sinner anyway. But it's not about the sins you've done. It's about the sin estate you're born into, and here's the righteousness that can be yours by faith in Christ. And so righteousness is, is its a great doctrine. You've got to know the doctrine, but it then becomes a tool for evangelism. I found it very useful in a lot of ways. Any questions on righteousness? On the standard? Sometimes it's also a good reminder to remind yourself that you are not the standard. Your righteousness is not what's offended. When someone sins against you, they didn't sin against you, they sinned against God. Against God and God only have I sinned. And so someone, it makes it, it's a, I think it makes it easier to, to let it go, to forgive it, to afiim, me, just let it go. Say, Father, that wasn't a sin against me anyway. That was a sin against your righteous standard. I'm a sinner too. <laughs> How do I hold a grudge against somebody because I'm not the righteousness that was offended? It wasn't my righteousness offended that forced me to put my son on a cross. It was God's righteousness that was offended, that put his son on a cross. And so I'm going to hold something against somebody? No, afiemi is a release. You let it go. You let it go because it's not your court case anyway. It's his court case. And so you release it. Afiemi is a release. You release, you forgive. You leave it in the justice of God. Say, Father, this is. I'm delivering this over to the judgment function of the justice of God. And it is no longer in my court because I don't have a court. <laughs> not yet. I will judge the world someday, but that's that's not yet. Okay? Right here, right now, it's not my court. I I give that to the Supreme Court of Heaven. And, And what can I not forgive when I've been forgiven everything? All right. So related to righteousness, then, is justice. Related to righteousness is justice. It's the counterpart. God possesses the absolute unchangeable standard of righteousness, and when he administers that standard judicially, he manifests his absolute unchangeable justice. They go hand in hand. It's like a hand in a glove. That's why they're combined together so frequently in terms of holiness. All right? And so righteousness is the standard. Justice then applies that standard in particular rulings, in particular cases. And so you want to judge with righteous judgment, we're told. Absolute justice means God is absolutely fair in all his judgments. He has no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of the bribe. In other words, there's not one standard of justice for the normal people and another standard if your name is Hillary Clinton. Oh, did I say that? All right. Look, I I used to have a security clearance. I know the consequences for mishandling classified material. Well, I used to know it. (laughs) I used to know what that standard used to be. That's right. I'd be in prison. I know a man whose military career ended because of a, uh, an accident. Didn't intend to. He just misplaced a document. One document. He misplaced it accidentally. And uh, that ended his military career. Anyway, back to this. <laughs> Absolute justice means the Lord is absolutely fair in all his judgments that means we don't have the best legal system money can buy, which sometimes I think we do, whereby if you pay the right lawyers, if you pay the right judges, if you grease the right skids, you can get a certain outcome. And if you are some poor schmuck with a public defender, well, here's what you get. All right? That's unfortunate when those sort of things happen. Also... It doesn't mean that you go into a legal case and you think that your lawsuit is the lottery and because this is deep pocket money bags and he can afford it, you know, I spilled coffee on my lap, so McDonald's ought to to fork over $3 million. Well, wait a minute. Where's the fairness in that? You spilled coffee on your lap, okay? You know, um, absolutely fair. And so we don't let the poor people get over on the rich people. We don't let the rich people get over on the poor people. It ought to be blind. Justice is supposed to be blind. So, um, the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. He says, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. For Yahweh our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. When a culture has... Demonic anti-justice, a perversion of justice, that culture's in trouble. The justice of God is on the way, hopefully. If he's merciful, he'll wipe them out sooner rather than later. If his wrath really prolongs things, he may just give them over to that kind of ugliness. God's justice cannot be bought Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. You understand, whatever you attempt to bribe him with is just an insult anyway. What does he need? He doesn't need your money, he doesn't need anything from you. (coughs) This is the only form of justice that can exist consistent with the absolute nature of love. (coughs) Deuteronomy 10, 18. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. It is a love application that has to be compatible with justice. If it's not compatible with justice, it's not love. And maybe we don't think of of love and its link to justice as often as we need to, because the Bible links it. And so there it is. You know, Are you going to excuse a little bit of unfairness just because of love? (laughs) That's not love. All right. That's partiality, and that's not love, and that's not justice. It violates both. As already noted, he is righteous and upright, and this finds expression in his faithful exercise of justice. All his ways are just. He is a God of faithfulness and without injustice. That's who he is. So he wants his covenant people to reflect that. They're to have just weights in the marketplace. They're to have fair scales in their marketplace. They're to have um, true value in their coinage. They can't be shaving the, the, the silver content from their coins. They can't be manipulating their money supply. They can't be um, cooking the books. <clears throat> How many rounds of quantitative easing have we had Since 2009, and uh, and then and then we're going to go accuse China of manipulating their currency. Are you kidding me? Yeah, they're manipulating their currency, but what are we doing with three minimum rounds of quantitative easing? And I think it's been more beyond that. Anyway, uh, uh, unjust scales. We're supposed to have just scales. Uh, every time I fill up my tank with gas I make sure that seals in place on the on the gas tank why because well there's a state agency that's assigned to go around and inspect the seals on the pumps so the gas station I don't buy ten gallons of gas but really the thing just pumped nine gallons of gas told me it was ten gallons of gas and cheated me out of a gallon but charged me for ten gave me nine and and meanwhile the thief can can pocket the difference if he's shady he can have unjust Scales, unjust pumps. All right, no, that's a crime, that's theft. And, and there's a state of Texas agency that's supposed to inspect those. And, and uh, so I'll look for that when I, when I pump my gas. Because, uh, gas is expensive. <laughs> All right, so did we look at this one yet? Deuteronomy 32.4, Yep, yeah, we saw that one earlier. Isaiah 30, verse 18, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, Therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. Well, what's keeping him? What's slowing him down? Come on, get on with it already. Well, wait a minute. The Lord is a God of justice. Okay, we might have some issues to deal with first. (laughs) We may have to make some adjustments to the justice of God so that love and compassion and these other things can then be applied freely without compromising his integrity, without compromising his essence. How blessed are those who long for him. The absolute justice of God can form the basis of a bold and confident prayer life. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? This is Abraham's prayer life. We should make it a part of our prayer life, because he's a God of justice. You know, we get so offended. Our Our sensitivities get offended We see an injustice in the world and we want to stomp our feet or shake our fist or we get mad at an injustice. Well, okay. Consider, though, the reflection of what's God's attitude with respect to this injustice. What's his sanctified wrath with respect to this injustice? Let's get on board in our prayer life with what God's dealing with this unjust world. Ultimately, he sent his son into this unjust world. And he paid the unjust death. There is a a perfect world on the way. You might have heard, according to his promise. We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what I'm looking forward to. Until then, this world's not fair. Life's not fair. Quite often, finite creatures bound by time, i.e. human beings, fail to apprehend God's justice. We think because we haven't seen it yet that there isn't any. And yet God is delaying, God is deferring. God in his graciousness is patiently waiting for the repentance. That's Second Peter 3.9. Slow to anger and patient towards sinners. All right. In the case of the unbeliever, he is patiently awaiting repentance so that his justice can be administered to his undeserving son, on the cross rather than upon the deserving sinner. And thank God for that. In the end, though, when patience has run its course, justice is exercised. He will not be mocked. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. His impartial justice is essential for our salvation. Specifically, the blessings of justification can be faithfully counted upon only if our God is a God of impartial justice. If he is not absolute justice... How are we guaranteed of our eternal life? We'll deal with that when we get into soteriology. All right, well, I'll stop there. We'll pick up on love and do the rest of the Essence Box next week. Any questions, comments, thoughts? Was this useful? Uh, were, there, were there verses that weren't included in this that are some of your favorite? You, you're just out there hating hating your pastor, saying, I can't believe he didn't put me, my favorite righteousness verse, and he didn't even put it in there. Radley's got one. All right, your favorite justice verse. Come up with your own. I mean, just whatever, whatever clicks. And in some cases, maybe it's not the best verse in the world, but boy, it means everything to you. So that's you know, it's the one you use. And I can appreciate that too. All right, Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for this class. And Father, I pray for um, the younger believers at Austin Bible Church that are just getting basics for the first time ever. And I pray for the older believers, Father, that are reinforcing what they know and learning uh, different ways to explain different things. And, Father, we're all learning, and it's a blessing, Father. I thank you for it. I pray that each one of us might be motivated to teach this to our family, our friends, our neighbors, our enemies, anyone that you open a door of opportunity, Father. We have a chance uh, in the coming days and weeks ahead. We have a chance to teach uh, to teach about the justice of God or the righteousness of God and, uh, or the sovereignty of God, whatever the case may be. Father, equip us to communicate your truth, Thy word is truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Blessings upon you. Enjoy your evening.